From University of Puget Sound, it's What We Do, a weekly podcast about the innovators, teachers, dreamers, and performers of Puget Sound and the stories behind the work they do. Hello, and welcome to this week's What We Do podcast. I'm Chuck Luce, the editor of Arches, the alumni magazine here at Puget Sound. And with me this morning are Sarah Moore, professor and chair of the Department of Psychology, and Alan Krauss, an assistant professor of business and leadership at the college. Thanks for being here. Sure. My pleasure. Lately, you two have teamed up to look at the psychological relationships between employers and employees. And in your research, you talk about a psychological contract. In in reading your recent paper, I note that the term has been around since about 1960, but I'm unfamiliar with it. Can we start by defining what is a psychological contract? Psychological contract has to do with the expectations that an employee has of the employer. Now, those expectations go outside of the legal contract. Obviously, the legal contract stipulates wages and work responsibilities and hours, but there are all sorts of expectations that we all have that go beyond that. Um, An idea, Sarah? Maybe an example? Sure. So, um, if I think about here, you know, the University of Puget Sound, I have the courses I'm supposed to teach, and there's the expectations for that I do research and that I'm involved in service. But I might also have a sort of an implicit set of expectations that the university will provide interesting opportunity for me, or that I will have good uh, relationships with my colleagues, or that the students are going to be of a certain kind of caliber. And, and no one ever said explicitly that those are things that are part of the formal arrangement I have with the university, but nonetheless, they are expectations that I have kind of in my head. Um, And so the psychological contract refers to that sort of exchange that employees have uh, between themselves and the employer for these things that are not um, explicitly written down. And these things aren't coming from the the employer. These are are things that that you yourself have at expectation wise or that or that you bring to the job after you've been in it for a while. Correct. I mean, sometimes you have them even before you start the job, you know, but maybe you have some sort of notion of what a company is like and so you enter day one with a certain set of um, understandings and perhaps those are quickly modified. Um, but yes, what's interesting about this is that it's not necessarily um, true in any sort of uh, sense of the word that we might think where it, it really is the employee's expectations, and, and nowhere um, necessarily has an employer said, yes, in fact, your expectations are correct. Um, so an employee could presumably be wildly off base, um, which is interesting in its, in its own right. In, in your paper, you, you gave an example of, of one of these psychological contracts that, that an employee of a, I believe it was a county government. Mm-hmm. Um, can, can we... Can we talk about that just so that the listeners sure. can get A good example. It has nothing to do with a uh, university, but Kim Davis, a uh, county clerk for Rowan County. Um, when the, the uh, Marriage Equality Act was passed and uh, same-sex couples were allowed to get married, she chose not to issue marriage certificates to those couples. And in her interviews with the media and published statements, it was very clear that she did not see this as uh, outside of her job responsibilities or unreasonable uh, uh, for her employer to make this request, but that she personally could not do that. 
it went against her personal beliefs. Um, so that's one example that clearly had nothing to do with her formal employment contract, but was such a strong personal belief that she could not at that point execute the, the, her job function, her responsibilities. And in the literature that you reviewed for your paper, there apparently has been quite a bit written about these kinds of feelings in, say, social service and educational jobs, but very little research conducted in manufacturing environments. So we talk about them being value-laden constructs or value-laden uh, uh, employment opportunities. So people who are working directly with uh, uh, a needy population. So if you're uh, working in a nonprofit, helping out uh, disadvantaged or homeless people, if you're a medical professional dealing with patients that need help, or even, uh, not to sound too self-congratulatory, uh, if you're uh, an educator and you're working with students, you have a definite commitment to those people that goes beyond your commitment to your organization. So um, I do have friends at other institutions who are upset at their administration, and they say, well, I just wish I could you know, have my time with my students, do what I want to do, and not have the university getting in my way. And that's one example of that commitment. We can also easily imagine, you know, medical professionals saying, well, I'm upset with the hospital, I'm upset with my employer, things aren't working out there, but I still want to take care of my patients. And that commitment that uh, uh, goes beyond uh, what is not just what formally written, but uh, what we typically expect people to look for in a work environment, seem, uh, particularly the compensation and then the professional advancement opportunities. So I think one thing that's kind of important to add is that you mentioned this has been around for a while. And when this construct of the, you know, a psychological construct first kind of came into, into being, if you will, um, people talked a lot about two forms of currency of these contracts, namely sort of economic and relational. Um, so maybe some of the economic was sort of my expectation for how I'm going to be compensated and the, you know, the relational being maybe things that are connected to the kinds of relationships I would have coworkers or the security or the advancement opportunities, training, that sort of thing. And um, what is more recent is some of the stuff that Alan just mentioned, namely more of these ideological um, uh, sort of expressions of the expectation. And so that is a relatively newer kind of aspect to psychological constructs. Um, and the thing that um, we were looking at was to what extent then do you see evidence of ideological currencies and contracts with people where you wouldn't have expected to see them that is outside of these areas that Alan just mentioned, like education or healthcare or um, where people are volunteers more, um, where they're working more for causes and things where you can more readily imagine these kind of more altru altruistic values kind of coming into play. You, you, des you describe then this so social contract in, in the kinds of businesses where, there are contact, where there's contact with people. But what about in the kind of jobs where people are, are in manufacturing? They're, they're not communicating directly with people. They don't have this social interaction. Mm -hmm. uh, you came up with a questionnaire to, to find out how workers in these kinds of jobs were feeling. Can you describe that? Sure. I mean, that's the point of our research. We really want to ask the question, do these ideological commitments that people have in these value-laden positions, does, does something parallel happen where there aren't those implicit values. So we chose an organization that uh, focuses on manufacturing 
has a lot of blue collar employees. They make an industrial product so they don't ever see the end user. There's none of that human contact. And really wanted to ask the question, does that type of ideological commitment happen in this very different environment? And if it does, then we could start to generalize it perhaps to majority of employees and uh, in some ways change or even revolutionize our perception of what work is and how people gain that meaning that's so important to all of us in our work. Right. And I think the other piece about the, I get two other points, with these ideologically uh, based contracts, um, I think there's kind of almost like an elitist view of the meaning of work that um, at least I read, you know, in um, in the previous literature, you know, like when they're talking about people can only really have sort of altruism or these values if they're in these white-collar, well-educated, people-oriented professions. And that that just doesn't seem correct to me. You know, if you just talk to most people with most jobs, people have um, a lot of altruism and a lot of kind of value that they imbue into what they do. I think people are really... Um, motivated to find deeper meaning in what they do. And so um, that was part of the motivation for our study. Um, the other um, piece to it is that we thought that this ideological contract um, idea needed to be uh, conceived of more broadly, right? And so um, we wanted to try to see how that, if in fact you saw it in, in blue collar work, um, what does that in fact look like? Are we really looking at the same thing? It just maybe has a slightly different content associated with it, but it's really the same kind of values. The other piece I think I want to mention is that um, in the literature there's been um, the suggestion that that having that kind of basis for, at least in part, the motivation of why you do what you do could be related to a lot of important organizational outcomes, that you might get stronger commitment out of people, people who stay on the job a little bit longer, people who are willing to work a little bit harder to do a little bit more thorough, complete job, um, who kind of go out of their way to do what we call kind of you know extra role behaviors or organization, you know, organizational citizenship behaviors where you know, like if I'm walking across campus and I see litter on the ground, you know, I, I'm not working, you know, the ground services, but I would still pick up the litter because I care about this place. And so you have people who are willing to do sort of those out-of-role behaviors on, if they have this ideological kind of contract. And so it would behoove employers to try to cultivate that if, in fact, you get better employees, if that's at least part of the reason that they're there. So that's, I think, also part of our motivation for looking at this topic. So, so it is two-part. There's yeah. an academic interest here in yeah. changing this conception of work and then a real practical yeah. consideration on how managers work with people in their organizations. And asking that question, is there that opportunity in all environments mm -hmm. to elicit that ideological connection that will lead people to do extra work? And, and both us and the other scholars in this area have shown even sometimes if they see the organization going off track, we'll work harder to bring it back as opposed to simply saying, uh, the organization is going the wrong direction, I'm out of here. So that additional commitment can be a real value. Can we then talk about how you conducted the study? Sure. Um, so we've had a connection with this organization for a while, and the unions um, who were interested in our work, we were able to disseminate a survey to all the union members um, 
which was a fairly sizable um, sample. And it was a lengthy online survey um, that had a lot of different kinds of questions on it. But there was one particular question that was what we call open-ended, where it just poses a question and people can type as much as they want to respond to it. Um, it's not like you have to just like circle a number on a scale, like how much you strongly agree to strongly disagree. And the question, I have it here, um, was, in your opinion, what are the most important issues that face the name of the company as it moves into the future? And while in some ways that's maybe kind of an unlikely question to ask to try to get at this topic, what it did in fact um, elicit from people was um, folks coming forward with, I think these are the things of concern, these are the things I care about, um, these are the places where the company needs to kind of put its resources. Um, this is what I see in like the coworkers who are around me who are either doing this or not doing this other thing that's important to the, to the well-being of the organization and so forth. So it actually, because it was so open, lots of different material could kind of come forward. And um, that's how we got the info. So uh, while we had over 3,000 people reply to the survey, um, it was right around 1,500 who bothered to actually type in a response to that question. And so those were the data we used to write this paper. Were you worried that they were self-selecting in some way? That you weren't getting a broad enough uh, representative sample uh, because it was an email uh, or an online survey? Well, I mean, you know, that's always a thing we have to think about, right? And so the, some of the things that we do to try to um, address that concern was look to see if our response rates are comparable to what other people get, and the answer is yes. The other thing that we did is we looked at the demographic characteristics of the sample, so say the percentage of men and women or the average age of the people and how that's distributed, so forth, and look to see if that's the same as the distributions of those characteristics of the people who are the union members. And the answer is they were roughly the same. Now, that's not a perfect way to do it, but that's kind of what we do in our line of research. Um, I think the other thing to keep in mind is that we were trying to see if, in fact, expressions of this ideological currency could come forward in blue-collar workers. And so in some ways, the degree of representativeness, I don't want to say it's unimportant, but you can in some ways sidestep that question because if it is demonstrated that, that there's your answer. What we can't say is say um, how frequently, if our frequency of how, how often we found it would match how frequently you might find it in sort of um, the true population. So this really is the challenging and the exciting part of yeah. the data collection is we were looking for something that no one had ever shown before. Uh -huh. So we didn't want to uh, lead our, our, our respondents. We didn't want to say, do you feel an ideological connection to your company? Because then they might say, oh, maybe I'm supposed to, and they'll check yes. Right. So it was really important to leave it very open and let them express things freely. And that way, if we found it, then we could feel confident that, yes, we found something uh, not entirely new, but in an entirely new place. And then as Sarah began to describe, we didn't know what form that would take. Mm -hmm. So we obviously couldn't say, well, do you feel connected? 
do you, do you feel a need to help out the student or the patient because there are no students or patients? So right. there was a real uh, discovery process here in going through all this information and finding number one, are, is there anything here that is ideological? And then number two, what is important in terms of the ideological sphere for these blue collar manufacturing workers? Okay, so focusing on those two questions, um, what did you find? Well, we found... Uh, yes. I mean, we can kind of explore that a little bit more, but the other piece is that it was at about the same rate that you saw it in the white-collar workers. And the way in which it was expressed was not actually all that different. So this idea that it only may be found in well-educated, more sort of complex work just isn't true. So that was, that was sort of the... That's kind of the punchline to the paper, if you will. Yeah. Neat. And the things we found ran along some, again, some of the same themes we saw in the white-collar workers. So one was pride, mm -hmm. wanting to do a really good job, quality, wanting to turn out really quality products and services. Um, the processes, you know, the, the ability for those people who are experts in their field to work towards a, a quality product, towards a really high-quality product, which sounds obvious, but um, in some organizations, I dare say too many organizations, the focus can become uh, either a focus on schedule, getting things out on time, or cost, getting things out at a low cost. So uh, these experts often were bumping up against those constraints. Um, and then there was a real focus on the user's well-being. Um, even though these people never saw the end user, um, were very uh, separated from that person. So in that way, very much akin to what we're talking about with uh, medical professionals, uh, educational professionals. And then there was there were some expressions of an interest in disadvantaged third parties mm -hmm. in general. So uh, wanting to take care of American workers or those who were less fortunate economically that were truly things we never would have guessed okay. to have looked for in this uh, environment. Mm -hmm. At this point then, it's not about did I get paid or um, I don't... I care about the company or whatever. I mean, they really feel like they are contributing to the safety and well-being of Americans. I mean, it really has got this much larger kind of mm -hmm. ethos, I would say, that sustains it. Yeah. And and so in the table that we have in the paper, we show sort of uh, comparison quotes that are either ideological or socio-emotional or economic. So, for example... Um, looking at like user well-being um, someone who said something ideological was they referring to top leadership they don't get the fact that everything we do on these products is so important to the safety of all the people that use them um, someone else who said you know it, it's such a large operation that it's really a marvel for what it's able to accomplish on a human level in terms of harnessing all these people to produce a safe product to benefit our world I mean, that's the kind of thing. I mean, people really see what they're doing in these very lofty, and I don't mean that in a derogatory sense, mm -hmm. um, terms. Um, that is what keeps them going, right? And, 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 yeah, they care about getting paid, and, yeah, they care about good working conditions and so forth, but what sort of gets them up in the morning is that feeling that that's the kind of work they're doing. It's really that important. So that's encouraging to hear about the workers' positive feelings about their jobs. But how about when they think their employer isn't holding up its end? 
we talked about a little bit ago that, you know, like, why should you care about this? And um, we asserted that, well, it's maybe connected to the kind of job performance you get from people. Um, and so one of the things that we're looking at is what happens when an organization breaches the contract, when the organization actually does something that violates your sense of what the contract is, how do people resolve those discrepancies between what I thought should happen and what actually did happen, and in turn, um, what in fact might happen to them ultimately in terms of the way in which they feel about the company and maybe their performance, or at least what they say about their performance. And so we have um, some very extensive uh, transcripts from interviews that were conducted from employees um, where there was a breach of the contract from the company's side and we are then looking to see how people kind of dealt with that. And again, when, when you say contract, you're not, you're not talking about a written contract, Correct. you're talking about their expectations. The psychological the contract, yeah. right. Exactly. Yeah. And it does get very interesting because in these extensive interviews we get more of a personality, more of a life story, and we get a sense of how people deal with these disappointments in the workplace. And, um, it's something that research shows that is happening more and more often as uh, you know we as Americans no longer have lifetime employment as we move from one job to another and as industries change and you know jobs are shipped abroad and things of that nature there's very regular instances of this disappointment that I expected either better working conditions or longer tenure or more chances to advance and get training um, so we saw a number of different reactions there and you know, looking through those reactions over time really laid out some interesting stories. Mm-hmm. Are you working on a, a paper based on that research as well? A timeline on that at all? When it be done? I'm going to say this semester. Okay. <laughs> Deadlines are the best and the worst. Motivating to get us to work, but yeah, if we don't yeah. meet it. But yeah, yeah this, this semester would be our goal. Yeah. And, you know, we're starting to find some... some uh, similarities between people's stories so some people who deal with this disappointment very directly they try and go back at the company and change it say you know this isn't right we need to go back to the way things used to be and uh, you know the types of things I was just describing the overall change in the workforce in the US a lot of these changes can't be rolled back so this question of how do people deal with that disappointment and uh, for some it's incredibly stressful Um, results in numerous difficulties, whether they're physical or psychological. Other people adapt different coping strategies or different ways of disengaging with that expectation and then adopting a new expectation. So a lot of interesting stories. Yeah. The other piece kind of related to this contract kind of concept that we were talking about if if we imagine and this is a simplification so that there's these three different kind of currencies that comprise people's contracts the economic the social and the ideological um, let's imagine that the company sort of breaches the ideological piece for you what might that do and 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 so what we're seeing is that maybe people kind of rearrange their contracts a little bit so they say okay fine can't count on the ideological piece I'm just going to really put all of my eggs in the socio-relational economic piece and go get my ideological needs fulfilled doing something else outside the company. Um, And so we saw people like kind of 
pieces of the contract sort of waxing and waning in response to these violations that they experienced as a way to resolve, as Ellen said, like sort of that disappointment or that discrepancy between here's what my expectation was, but it was breached, and now I've got to, decide, I've got to figure out what to do with that. Because walking around in a state of breach is just too miserable. Right. So when you're not getting any emotional satisfaction out of your work, you look someplace else to yeah. satisfy it. Well, it, it, it's interesting. Sometimes people say, well, I can't get that from the company, but I'll go invest in the profession. Or I can't get that from my supervisor, so I'm going to really um, focus on the mentoring I'm doing to younger, with, with younger workers. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that they go elsewhere, like necessarily outside to, you know, like with their family or their church or their community efforts or whatever, um, they may find ways to rearrange it even within the company. But it's really fascinating to see how, just again, the, the, the different patterns and what we've come up with for this paper that we're talking about now is um, trying to kind of categorize those different sorts of responses into different types um, as a way to, uh, you know, provide some sort of useful summary. Uh, so it's not like just everybody's got their own story, but, you know, that there, there are some patterns yes. to this. Yeah. And it's very fun to see those yeah. surprises because, you know, the general expectation is my company disappoints me, so I'm going to be less interested. I'm going to invest less energy in the company. But to see the opposite, yeah. kind of as you were describing, you know, my supervisor doesn't mentor me anymore, so I could just stop mentoring anyone else. But we see people who take the opposite. They're going to be doubly focused on mentoring the people below them because now they feel that loss so deeply that they know how important it is. Or to say, I'm no longer getting this connection with my company, but I have a connection with an organization in my community. I'm going to bring those values into the workplace and uh, try and supplement or, or fill this lack that has uh, that I'm experiencing now. So that resourcefulness and desire to to improve not just the employee's own uh, experience, but those people around them is, is really exciting mm -hmm. to see. Mm -hmm. It's nice to hear that that kind of altruism survives. It, it, it does, yeah. it, more so than maybe you think it's going to. I mean, to be fair, there are people who just say, to heck with it, sure. and, and now it's a paycheck for me, and that's gonna be good enough, and I will go, in fact, do all that other stuff outside of the company. Mm -hmm. So we've got that pile of people too. Um, and then we've got some people who just simply deny that anything went wrong. And it is fascinating to see to what lengths people will go to avoid confronting the fact that they actually experienced such a hideous violation. Well, I mean, all this goes to understanding the satisfaction people derive from work, um, you commitment. know, the commitment that they have, understanding that that's a much more human experience than it is a, a, a privileged experience for one group, learning to honor that, and then understanding how people respond to those disappointments and how it's a very human experience where they bring in other resources and uh find ways again to take care of themselves and the people around them is is a is a very optimistic way but simultaneously optimistic and realistic way to look at this experience of work uh, that we all uh, share it, it's fascinating to me I, you know I, I think the general populace when, when they when we when we think about business and what we're reading in the papers these days and what we're mm -hmm. hearing so often, it's all focused on the bottom line. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. all about share, holder, holder, yeah, yeah. holder mm -hmm. uh, 
mm-hmm. quick profit, risk, right. yeah, profit. Yeah. Uh, and and to hear you guys talk about you know this, this kind of emotional connection work among people going on you know at on the on the on the factory floor is mm-hmm. is great to hear. Yeah. Well, thank you so very Our much pleasure. for joining sure. us today. Thank yeah. uh, uh, Great conversation. I, I wish you luck on the new paper. I look forward to seeing how that all comes out. Well, thank um, you. Uh, thanks again. Yeah, Our pleasure. Sure, my pleasure. What We Do is brought to you by University of Puget Sound. Join us next Wednesday for another story about what we do at Puget Sound. And if you liked this podcast, rate us on iTunes.